but for now, we're going to look back at the attributes of God, the aspects of the glory of God that Moses saw, that the disciples probably saw when Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 9, Mark 9, and Luke, Matthew 17, and Mark and Luke 9s. Uh, the glory that Jesus uh, allowed his disciples to see was probably the same glory that Moses saw and same reaction. They worshiped, they fell on their face. Moses fell on his face and worshiped. The disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, fell on their faces and worshiped. And um, we can, let's see at verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of of the Lord. When it was frustrating back in the 90s, whenever people are saying, oh, you can see this 3D image on a 2D sheet of paper, and you couldn't see it, and you couldn't see it, and you couldn't see it, it'd be pretty frustrating. It's pretty frustrating when other people can see something that you can't see. But this passage of scripture says, we all, all Christians can and should see the glory of God. Here is Paul telling us the last 2,000 years, all of us as believers can see the glory of God. It's not that you can't see it. But let me tell you something. If your Bible sits unopened all day, every day for a week, two weeks, three weeks, you are not seeing what God saved you to see. You have to see, it, to, to see, you have to be willing to look. There are some things that you don't want to see, like if you uh, don't want to see your, well, my wife didn't want me to see her before the wedding. We actually had pictures before the wedding, so we had to, I, we had to see each other. But the moment that you see your, uh, your wife or husband to be the day of your wedding, you don't forget that. That's not, that's not something that you know you should see and you're like, no, I, I just don't want to look. No, I just don't, don't want to see it. And that was a glorious day. But let me tell you something more glorious that every single Christian can see every single day. You and I can see Jesus. We can see him. If you can't see him, I'd love to, to talk with you. Someone else would love to talk with you and tell you how you can have the veil removed, as we saw. If you turn to Jesus, he will remove the veil. And only if you turn to him will you remove the veil. We can see him. We can all see him. And as we see him, we are changed by the Spirit of the Lord. We have, Paul has bold ministry because every single Corinthian can see Jesus. So you go back to 1 Corinthians and all the trouble that the Corinthians were in was because they weren't seeing Jesus. But Paul was bold to them in writing letters because why? Because he knew that when they turned to Christ and all the Corinthian church had turned to Christ because you can't be part of the church unless you are a believer... In Jesus Christ. When people turn to Christ, the veil is removed. They can see Christ if they will look at him. And as they looked at him in 1 Corinthians, they saw themselves as 
very selfish, divisive, petty, childish, all the list of things that, that Paul addressed them to them in 1 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he's going to tell them about his ministry to them and others and how we can have ministry and how to think as a minister um, to other people. And he says in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 3, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are on, we are a part of God's glorious rescue plan. And because of that, we are bold. And part of God's glorious rescue plan is to save people, take the veil off and let them see his glory. And as we see his glory, and every Christian can see his glory, and as we see his glory, we're changed by glory, from glory to glory, and God's Spirit is doing the changing inside of us. So Paul is bold because we all can see him. And if you can't see him it's because, as a Christian, it's because you don't want to see him. And there are Christians who have walked away from church and believers, godly people, who they don't want to talk to because, you know why? They don't want to see his glory. They want their sin. They want their separation from God because they know, if I go back to that church, they're going to confront me in my sin. Well, yes, yes, we will, as that's what healthy churches do because you're sick spiritually and you need healing. So if I could summarize verse 18 that I'll I'll use next week as well. And I think you can memorize this. Here, here is the progression of change. How do we grow as Christians? This is it. You can teach this to your kids from the time that they know Christ. You see him, you submit to him, and then you show him. Submit to him is the Holy Spirit who does the work. The Holy Spirit does the work in us as we submit. That's how we walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, okay? But we can't we don't want to submit to him or show him if we don't see him. When you and I see something spectacular, when I got to the west rim of the Grand Canyon, you know what I did? I'm like, who can I call? Who can I FaceTime? Can I get cell service here enough? And so it was two people that were on my short list that got a call. And if you didn't, I'm sorry. Didn't make my short list. My mom did, okay? So I called my mom. And, hey, Mom, we're here at the West Rim of the Grand Canyon. This is amazing. And you're holding up the phone, and the Grand Canyon's behind you. And you want to show her, this is amazing. She's like, John, I've been there. I'm like, hey, I know, I know. I just wanted to show you. <laughs> like, we're here, and we thought of you. Okay? But when you see something that is spectacular, and it's changed your life, you'll never be the same. You want other people to see it, too. And what Paul is saying here is, if you're part of God's glorious rescue plan, and you realize that you, God wants to use you to help other people to be part of that glorious rescue plan, that you're very bold. You don't care what people think, because you have seen something glorious. You've seen God the Father, God the Son, and you know God the Holy Spirit is working. And you're part of what God is doing on the earth. And as you see Him, and you see Him in all of his glory as the great I am that we saw last week, you'll submit to him. You'll be dependent on him. And as you and I submit to him in humility, he gives us grace. And if we have sin, he gives us more grace. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And how do we get that grace? God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That's captured here in this word submission. So as we see him, 
We put ourselves under him in submission, and then he sends us out to show him to the world. And that's how we're changed. We see him, we submit to him, we show him. And it's a process. It's a lifelong process. This process is from one degree of glory to another, and we'll look at that next week. But let's look at the aspects of the character of God that God wants us to see. So hold your hand. You don't have to hold your hand. We're not going to come back here. Go to Exodus 34 again. Exodus 34, a reminder of the glory of God that, that Moses saw that we can all see. Why Exodus 34? Because this is when Moses' face was glowing that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 3. And when Paul says only Moses saw it, his face was glowing, but it was diminishing, and he put a veil over it because the Israelites didn't want to see it. They were uh, scared of Moses, terrified of his glowing face. They didn't ask him, how can our faces glow too? And Moses alone saw the glory of God, but we all can see his glory now. It's better than the Old Testament. And as we see his glory and we submit to the Holy Spirit who's changing us from the inside out, then we can show him. We can reflect his glory. So what should we be reflecting? Verse 6 of chapter 34 of Exodus. The Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. We cannot reflect the I am of God. All of who God is as self-existent, his covenant name, he is perfect, he doesn't need anything or anyone, he has existed in eternity past, and he doesn't need oxygen, he doesn't need sleep, and he doesn't need food, he doesn't need us, he doesn't need a galaxies, he doesn't need the universe, he is just fine without any of that, but he created all of that for his glory, and we can see his glory, and we're to be changed by his glory. So we can't reflect the I am. We submit to the I am. But he is a God who is merciful and gracious. Oh, we can reflect his mercy and grace. He is slow to anger, and we should be reflecting that. He is um, abounding in steadfast love, and our hearts and our lives could, should be abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is keeping steadfast love for thousands, and we'll learn about that today and reflecting that. Next week, we'll look at forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we can't reflect that either, because we can't forgive sin, nor do we judge sin in the future. So God has a book bookends here of these seven things. And the I am and the judgment at the end, we don't do. Actually, releasing someone from sin, we don't do either. Only God can forgive sin. We know that from the Gospels, and Christ did forgive sin. So we don't forgive sin. We can be forgiving, but and we can't judge at the end. We don't keep people uh, in bondage to their sin and bring justice. Um, we release them to God who will do that perfectly sometimes now and always in the future. So, but we can show steadfast love and faithfulness. We can be slow to anger. We stopped last week with uh, the I am, and you'll notice the cross. The cross uh, will, um, is how we see the glory of God 
uh, even more clearly, and it, it will become uh, more clear as we go along. Are we growing in our dependence on our God? He is the I am, and we are to depend on him for salvation, for growth, which is sanctification. God is merciful and gracious, and I didn't put this up last week. Are we growing in reflecting his compassion? Who needs compassion? Those who have needs. So with the needy people around Jesus, he had compassion on all different types and categories of people. And everyone who had serious needs that was brought to Christ, who was near Christ, he was moved with compassion on them. We're not surprised whenever Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, because we have seen in the life of Christ, he was merciful and gracious. He was full of compassion. Are you growing in your compassion? Do children come to you when they're needy and they're hurting? If not, you probably need to grow a lot more in your compassion because compassionate people attract hurting people. And when you and I hurt, who do you talk to when you hurt and you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with loneliness, when you're struggling with pain? Who do you talk to? You talk to a compassionate person. You don't want to hear, suck it up. Rub some dirt on it. Yeah, well, if you knew what kind of pain I had years ago, that's not helpful when someone's grieving. And we need to be merciful and gracious. We need to grow in this. How do we grow in this? We need to see him and submit to him. And then we can show him. We need to see that our God is merciful and gracious. You'll see it in the Old Testament with how he dealt with Israel, how he dealt with Rahab the harlot, how he dealt with a lot of other people in the Old Testament, and how he deals with us. And as we see him as merciful and gracious, we are changed to reflect his compassion. And there are people that we think you're needy and you're needy because you're foolish. And because you're foolish, you need to get wise. And until you get wise, I'm not showing you compassion. Mm, mm. And all of you compassionate people just went, oh, okay? And the rest of us are like, yeah, that's right. I mean, why, why can't people get it? We need, all need to grow in this area. None of us are perfectly like Christ in any category. We all have room for growth. How do we grow? We see him, we submit to him, and we, then we can show him. He's merciful and gracious. All right, this is a hard one. Slow to anger. This means long-suffering or patient, ten times in the Old Testament. It is often mentioned with God being merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, as we heard, I believe, from Carter's verse that he quoted, has slow to anger in it from uh, Psalm 145. Because these go together, that our God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, we often separate them and say, well, I might be merciful and gracious, but slow to anger. No, that's not me. That's someone else. We need to grow in this area too. What would have happened if to God's disobedient people in the Old Testament, if he was not slow to anger? He wanted to justly destroy all of the children of Israel except for Moses at least twice. And Moses cried out to him based on who Moses knew God to be. He knew God to be 
merciful and gracious and slow to anger. What would have happened to the people around Jesus' arrest, his trials, his crucifixion, if he was not slow to anger? How many angels did he have at his disposal? At least 72,000. They're probably waiting at the brink of heaven, waiting for Jesus to say, come. And he never said come. Why? Because he's slow to anger. All the people that hit him pulled out his beard and said, prophesy, Messiah, who struck you? He could have instantly, when they struck him, their hand would have withered, their arm would have fallen off, and they would have fallen over dead. It would not have been hard for the I am to do that. But he did it. He's slow to anger. As Peter denies Jesus, as he, told, he was told, prophesied that he would, and Jesus meets him in John 21, Jesus is slow to anger with Peter as well, restoring him. The angels would have been called. He could have just spoken the word, and Judas Iscariot, the soldiers, the chief priests around him, later the Sanhedrin, Herod, Pilate, the Roman soldiers who uh, scourged him, the crowds who were chanting, crucify him. Both thieves on the crosses would have died the moment they mocked him. And 1 Peter 2.23 says, But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And you know why Jesus suffers according to 1 Peter 2? As an example for us. He's our example. What is slow to anger? Slow to anger is meaning having a long fuse. There are some states that allow big fireworks. Pennsylvania is one of them. My dad, I think, bought some. So when we go out there this summer, he said, we're going. And these are the fireworks that you would see at the 4th of July in downtown Boston, that only for the professionals, OK? These go off, and they sound like a gun. And when they boom, ooh, it feels like something hits your chest. It's great. All right, so this is the kind of family I grew up in. And my dad's like, hey, you want some fireworks? Oh, yeah, my kids will love it. So, but those fireworks, the bigger they are, you know how long the fuse is? Long enough for you to light it and get very far away. They don't put a fuse on there that's a half a second long. Because if you did, no one would have a hand left. They put a long fuse on it. Why? Because of the power and the danger. When we are saved, many of us have a very, very short fuse. How do we know? Well, let's say, who knows? Do you know which of your parents had a shorter fuse? You absolutely do. We grew up as little kids evaluating mom, dad, and if you, had, if you were raised by uh, someone else, who of your adults in your life had the longest fuse, and that's who you would want to tell if you got in trouble. Never would you want the, the adult in your life that had the shortest fuse because the least little thing, and you're close enough and you get it. You feel the heat. You're like, I'm not going to tell you again. Why? Because they're not slow to anger. When 
you get older and you have older children, or you have a, some more serious things like, Dad, I wrecked the car, or I did this or that, and it's, it's pretty serious. Hey, I got stopped by the police. I'm actually at the police station. You want to talk to the parent who has the longer fuse. Whenever we're driving, and for me, it's driving. I don't know why it's driving, but it, for me, when it's driving and the speed limit's 45 and someone's doing anything less than 45, I do not have a long fuse. Like the speed limit's 45, that, that's a recommended minimum. At least go 45. And if you're doing well below 45, I'm like, okay. And I have really spiritual thoughts like you need to turn in your license, you know, who gave you a license, you get it in a, in a cereal box, all kinds of thoughts like that. Those are all quick to anger kind of thoughts. That's my flesh telling my mind and sometimes my mouth what to say. And it's not like Jesus. It's not slow to anger. We have to be slow to anger. And as we meditate on Jesus being slow to anger, and he's an example for us. When we grow in this area, those who offend us or do things that make our life harder will come to us knowing that we aren't, they aren't going to get that blow-up reaction because we have such a short fuse. Would the people, would those that love you the most see that your fuse has gotten longer over the past few years? You say, I don't know. Ask them. Well, that takes humility. Well, it takes humility to grow. So if you're going to grow, you're going to have to ask. If you don't know, ask someone closest to you. Hey, honey. Hey, son, daughter. Hey, best friend. Hey, whoever it is closest to you who has watched you blow up. They've seen you awful. They're like, that you're not a good example. All right? Are we growing in our reflecting God's patience. None of us would be on this planet if God was not slow to anger. And the more we meditate on all the stories of God's word, and especially the cross, our fuse should be growing. It goes from a half a second to a second to count to ten or whatever you want to do for helping you think through before you just ah, blow up. And you're hurting and you say some things that you should not say. Slow to anger. We see him. We submit to him. Then we can show the world that he is a God who is slow to anger. The next thing. He is a God who abounds, abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is one word in Hebrew. It's also, it could also be translated and possibly best translated loyal love. We don't have one word for that in the English, but in the Hebrew they have one word. It was loyal love. It was said of David and Jonathan, they had this type of love that were loyal to each other that we have studied in, in Sunday school as adults. And uh, Psalm 136, all 26 verses end with a survey of creation, Israel's deliverance, and God's provision for his people. All 26 verses end with God's steadfast love endures forever. Who needs that? Who needs steadfast love? 
None of us are perfectly showing steadfast love, loyal love to people. We think love is earned. No, love is given. That's what love is. We give love. And loyal love, and you can see how loyal love and faithfulness go together here as one phrase. God is loyally loving to us and showing faithfulness. These are things that we admire about all of our close friends, all the people that are near to us. What helps them to be even nearer to us and dear to our hearts is that they show steadfast love and faithfulness. When you call them at 2 a.m., they say, can I come to your house? What do you need? Why? Because you're expecting them to show you steadfast love. They don't say, what stupid thing did you do this time? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Half of the time in the Old Testament, the word translated faithfulness is also translated truth. So faithfulness is faithful to the truth or uh, displaying God's truth. In the, Old in the New Testament, we don't have an exact word for Greek as Hebrew has that loyal love word. But uh, self-sacrificing love, agape love, is probably as close as we have. And God so loved the world. All the commands to love except for one in the New Testament are this self-sacrificing love. And where do we see that in John 3.16? God so loved the world. The world cannot say God doesn't love because the world has the cross. We have the cross. And the world can't see it because they have the veil. But when the veil is removed, all Christians can see the cross. And what should stand out to us at the cross is our God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He promised Adam and Eve when they fell into sin that there was going to come a time that the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of Satan. And the crushing of the head of Satan happened on the cross. It is finished. God fulfilled his word. He is faithful. And he promised David he would have a king forever to sit on the throne. And when Jesus rises from the dead, ever and exalted at God's right hand, God's promise to David is fulfilled. Jesus is always going to be at God's right hand, ruling and reigning forever and ever. God so loved the world. God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Anyone can love a friend. Only Christians can love enemies. And we're expected to. Several New Testament passages tell us to love our enemies, pray for them, Think well of them. Steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what our God abounds in. Are we growing in this? Do we see him? Do we see that our God is steadfastly loving? Do we meditate on that steadfast love? And do we submit to the Holy Spirit who wants to use these hateful, unfaithful bodies and change these vile bodies to display and to reflect the steadfast love and faithfulness of our God. All of our relationships 
should be secure and that our spouse, our kids, our best friend, our people in our church are going to give us loyal love. Are you growing? Would those closest to you that would experience your steadfast love and faithfulness, would they say that you have grown in this area in the last five years? If you're not sure, ask them today. If not, you need to see him and you need to submit to him. He also keeps steadfast love. The text says, keep steadfast love for thousands, or another translation, to the thousandth generation. If generations are 20 years and the earth is 6,000 years old, based on the numbers that we have in Genesis and 2,000 years since Christ, so 4,000 years Old Testament era, 2,000 years New Testament era, 6,000 years old, 20 years, that's only 300 generations have lived. If 20 years is a pretty uh, low number for generations, you can have children into your early 40s, uh, so a generation can be longer than 20, but at the minimum 20 years, 300 generations. So why does God say to Moses, here's what you're seeing of my glory, and I'm keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations? And I think what, what he's getting at is God's steadfast love is available for anyone. He's available for anyone. How do we know God's love is available for anyone? Well, in the Ten Commandments, it says that. In the second giving of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 5.10, it says that. As Daniel prays years later in Daniel 9, he uses these words, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he says, God, you are a God who is keeping steadfast love. And while Daniel and his friends and, and relatives are in captivity, he prays to God and confesses sin and cries out to God, knowing that God is a God who keeps steadfast love for anyone. And if God's steadfast love can reach Nebuchadnezzar, it can reach anyone. If it can reach a woman at the well, it can reach anyone. If it can reach a thief on a cross, it can reach anyone. God is a God who displays steadfast love to the world. So here's how we minister. We tell the world, God so loves you, John 3, 16. 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is the propitiation. He appeases God's wrath for the sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God want people to come to repentance? Because his steadfast love is for them. It's for anyone. I don't know if you ever talked to someone and they said, I'm too far gone. Probably the... the, the instance in my college years that stands out to me the most, I was talking to a guy and he said, I killed a man. I'm like, I don't know if I've talked to a murderer before. What do I do? I said, you know what? There are people in the Bible. I'm just thinking off the top of my head as fast as I could. Uh, There are people in the Bible that were murderers as well. And God's steadfast love reached them. Moses, David, to name probably the Apostle Paul before he was saved. God's steadfast love is for anyone and for everyone. So how do we apply this? Those from, every, from any generation who turn from sin and trust Christ's death and resurrection enjoy God's steadfast love both now and forever. 
Because we don't know who God has chosen to redeem and draw to himself, we need to tell all those who are LGBT+, those who are doing drugs, those who are prostitutes, those who are covered in tattoos, those who are atheists, those who are cultists, those who are Satanists, those who are abortionists, those who are, have had or plan to have an abortion, those who are communists, those who are tax evaders, those who are self-righteous good people, people who are child molesters, people who are serial killers, etc., etc. Are there any in that list that you say, I don't want those people to have God's love. I want them to be judged. If you have that mindset, you need to be changed. Because God's love reached people like that in the Bible and since then. And you can read church history. Church history is full of people that were once haters of God, deniers of God's existence, and God saved them. Don't judge people before their death. We reach out in steadfast love because God is keeping steadfast love for anyone. Are we growing in our reflecting his love to anyone? Is there anyone you're avoiding talking to because you think, I don't have anything in common with them. If you have the flesh, you have something in common with them. You were once dead in trespasses and sins too. Don't think just because it was so long ago that you weren't saved out of your sin and your sin was any better than theirs. It wasn't. When we expose ourselves to God's steadfast love, it's available to anyone, we'll reflect that love to everyone. And finally today, he is a God who is forgiving any sin. The last uh, phrase that we'll see, Exodus 34, God is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgive is a translation of a Hebrew word that primarily means to lift or to carry. So when God forgives your sin, he lifts it off of you. Imagine Pilgrim's Progress and he's got this huge burden on his back. And when he comes to the cross, the burden is taken away. Whenever you, you and I see someone who is carrying a huge, overwhelming load of sin, we tell them, where can they find forgiveness? Who can take that burden? Who can lift it off of them? Only Jesus. And we point their eyes to Jesus and tell them, turn to Jesus, because when you do, you'll see his glory. When you see his glory, you'll submit to him. And then you can show other people what he's like. He forgives any sin Transgression is a very dark word. When you and I know what to do and we choose to do something else, that's transgression. We know God's law, we transgress or we disobey God's law. This would be the term rebellion as well. You know what to do, I'm going to do it my way, I don't care what they say. That's transgression. And then sin, missing the mark, broad category. God's Forgiveness is available. I'm sorry, I, I skipped over iniquity. That's guilt or the grossness. We feel dirty when we sin. We feel like we've done something wrong. At the cross, Jesus intercedes for those nailing him to the cross with, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If people were watching, they could have seen his glory that day. 
there hasn't probably been one person nailed on a cross before that that ever said anything like that. Those Roman soldiers saw the glory of God. They heard it. They heard forgiveness. They saw forgiveness. As they listened to Jesus and the two thieves and they're reviling him and he doesn't revile them back and then one of them finally says, don't you fear God? Don't you hear what we're doing? This man doesn't deserve to be on a cross. He clearly is not like one of us. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says in Luke 23, 42, today you'll be with me in paradise. That guy probably lived an awful life. I don't know what his background was. We don't know all the crimes that he had committed. We know he was dying justly, though. But he died forgiven. And then you and I, it doesn't matter how much sin we commit, if we die forgiven, we will be with him in paradise. Because we have all seen Jesus take all of our guilt, all of our rebellion, all of our sin away in a moment, how should we respond when someone confesses their guilt, their rebellion against us, their sin against us? When we see his glory, we submit to his spirit. Then we can reflect his forgiveness to the chief of sinners that confesses their sin to us. I don't care the list. There are probably in your mind a list of sins that if people commit these against me or my family and my loved ones, I am not going to forgive them. That list for the Christian who sees the glory of Jesus should be non-existent. There's zero sins on that list. And if you've got a list like that, Take them to the cross. Say, Jesus, does this please you if I have this list? And it won't. Jesus forgives any sin. Why? Because he shows us the glory of God. He forgives all iniquity and transgression and sin. Christ can forgive anyone. A spirit-controlled Christian can too. There is no reason why we have to live in bitterness and anger and unforgiveness to Christians or unbelievers, anyone in our life. Do you have any sins or categories of sins that are planning, you're planning to never forgive if someone commits them against you or those that you love? You need to be changed. How are we changed? We see him. We submit to him. We show him. Say that with me. See him. Submit to him, show him. This is how we grow. We see the glory of God. I can tell you where to see the glory of God, but I cannot open your eyes and your heart on a regular basis. You've got to do that. It's a, it's a decision of your heart and will. And when you do, you'll want to see him more. You want to see him more. You want to see him more. You'll get excited to open your Bible and see his glory. Let's pray. Our Father... Thank you so much for your forgiveness and you being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you for keeping steadfast love for us. Thank you for forgiving us. I pray that our lives would reflect who Christ is, that we're followers of Christ, that we want people to see Christ through us. I pray for all the Christians here. As we can see your glory, help us to decide to look at it. 
Help us to see it. Old Testament, New Testament. Help us to be changed by it as we submit to your spirit who wants to change us to become like Christ, who wants us to remember what we have seen longer than just a quick glance. I pray that we would be in the habit of submitting to the spirit and walking in the spirit so that he can produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives. And as you show fruit, I pray that you would draw other people to yourself uh, through, through us. In Christ's name we pray.